to the 100th episode of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. I want to start this special episode by saluting our listeners across Canada, in the United States, and in Europe, with a special shout-out to our South Korean friends who download our podcast week after week. Thank you. In October 2020, we observed the 50th anniversary of the October Crisis very painful time in Canada. On October 5, 1970, members of the Front Libération du Québec kidnapped James Cross, the British consul in Montreal. Five days later, they kidnapped Pierre Laporte, the Quebec Minister of Labour and the acting Premier of Quebec. On October 17, the FLQ announced that Laporte had been executed. We seldom hear about this victim, there's a profound embarrassment in the country that he could not be saved, and his memory, I'm afraid, is quickly fading. To talk about this remarkable man, I've asked Jean-Charles Penton to join me. Penton is the author of many books and the author of a biography of Pierre Laporte, published by Septentrion. Jean-Charles Penton, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Thank you. I think it's important, like you said before, you know, to talk about Pierre Laporte and his and his role, his life, not just his death. So, so I'm happy to be here today. You're the witness to yesterday for this episode. What happened on October 11th? But on October 11, uh, Pierre Laporte wrote a letter to the Prime Minister. This is a moving letter uh, from a reasonable but worried man. He wrote to the Prime Minister to have him released and tells him about his family situation. Um, is the pillar of his family and that is on, and that of his deceased brother, you know, it's a very familiar, uh, family particular situation. And to make sure that the Premier of Quebec does everything in his power to have him released. The letter also contains clearly written passage, uh, passages by his captors calling for an end to the police research. So it's a very, uh, very touching letter, very important letter that Pierre Laporte wrote to the Prime Minister uh, of Quebec. I said he was acting Prime Minister because when he was captured, uh, Premier Bourassa was out of the country and Monsieur Laporte was the acting Prime Minister. Exactly. Pierre Laporte was, uh, was acting as prime minister, vice premier minister, like we said uh, in French, uh, because uh, Mr. Bourassa was in New York at that time. Yeah. Let's start with the beginning. Jean-Charles, uh, who was Pierre Laporte? So Pierre Laporte is born February 27, 1921. He's the son of René Laporte, who was a doctor, and Juliette Le Duc. Um, the family, his family, uh, count um, seven children who lived in what uh, we know now as the Plateau Mont-Royal, very... Uh, very popular area now in Montreal. Um, it's a very f tight family. They do a lot of activities. And uh, uh, for example, during the summer, they spent um, their time in the countryside of a small village of Saint-Sulpice. This is the ancestral land of the family. Uh, Pierre Laporte will follow the usual course for all the young men of the bourgeoisie in Quebec. So uh, he's going to start, he's going to do his classical college and his university after the college. You've emphasized twice now the importance of family in Pierre Laporte's life. Yes. Um, he, he grew up in a, a closely knit family. Yes, absolutely. Um, the family is very, very important. 
um, and it's going to be like that for the for these for for his, for his entire life. You know, uh, they're going to move at some point uh, on Saint Lambert on the south shore of Montreal, and all the family will will move in the same corner of the street. They all have houses like close to other one. So the father will be there, the the brother Pierre Laporte. So they always been like a very uh, close family. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. Yes, it is. Yeah. You say in your book, uh, and you point out quite rightly, um, he goes to the Collège Brébeuf. And the Collège Brébeuf is an important moment in his life. There are many people around him that people know today that Canadians are very familiar with. All the the, um, the the sons of the great family in Montreal are going there. Pierre Elliott Trudeau, which would be the Prime Minister uh, of Canada, uh, a lot of intellectuals like André Laurendeau, all those you know great people uh, are at this college. So, but it would it will be there for like at least a year, and then he'll finish his uh, classical college at um, Saint Sulpice. So. It's not going to be at Brebeuf all the time, but he, he has the time to, to meet all those great people at the college. The point is that he does know these people. He does know. Yes, of, of course. It's a very small, you have to understand that Montreal is a very small, the intellectual and cultural, you know, circles are very small. So everybody knows everybody. So it's, it's like that at that time. Yeah. He decides to go to law school. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he started in 1942, and which is interesting, is a very active uh, student. So during his uh, law studies at the University of Montreal, uh, he began writing for the student newspaper Le Quartier Latin, uh, followed by the newspaper Le Canada and Le Devoir. Uh, for Le Devoir, he covered municipal news in particular, and the director at this time of Le Devoir, Georges Pelletier, noticed his talents and offered him a position as journalist in 1944, and Pierre Laporte will remain and, uh, as a journalist until 1961. Uh, so he never practiced as a lawyer, he finishes uh, his studies, but never, never been like practicing uh, uh, the law. He must have been a remarkable writer. I mean, starting at age 21 to be published in Le Devoir, Le Canada, Le Devoir, uh, can you describe his style, his writing style? Let's say as a journalist, he was, he has a particular flair, uh, as his colleagues on testified. Uh, his character was like very good to be a journalist. He was, uh, he has affability, good interpersonal skills and go-getter character, which naturally uh, led him to practice a journalism that was rather rare at this time. We call that investigative journalism. Uh, he will launch several major investigations, including the natural gas scandal. His reporting will make a lot of noise and shake up the government of Maurice Duplessis, uh, which uh, was elected at, at Quebec. How do you picture him as a young man, let's say 30 years old? It's 1950, 51. Uh, he's, he is friendly to the Union Nationale at that point, is he not? Let's say Le Devoir almost, uh, you know, almost got by by um, by the uh, by Maurice Duplessis. Maurice Duplessis wants to uh, buy this journal, but he, he wasn't able to do it. You mean literally purchase the the, the newspaper? Yeah, purchase this. Really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He won't. Yeah, yeah. Maurice Duplessis likes to control the yes, press. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 
uh, <laughs> and he's got friends and all, you know, journals right. at that time. Le Devoir, the Le Devoir was founded by Henri Bourassa, was an exception, was a, an independent journal. Um, and at that time, um, the director, Georges Pelletier, um, you know, was not so critical about Duplessis. But the next, the, the, the director who follow him, uh, Gérard Fillion, was uh, was very, very critics about his work, about uh, Maurice Duplessis' works. So that's why Duplessis didn't like at all Le Devoir. So at the beginning, when uh, Pierre Laporte started as a correspondent at Quebec, uh, in Quebec, he was like kind of nice with Maurice Duplessis. And Maurice Duplessis oh, even invited him and his, and his car. And, uh, that was very, very, uh, you know, nice and friendly, but, um, that doesn't mean Laporte didn't do his work. It was very critical at some point. And then it started to be like very difficult between Laporte and, and Mother's Duplessis. Well, your book, your book clearly demonstrates how there is a political evolution in Pierre Laporte's mind, uh, through the 1950s. More and more, he is the parliamentary correspondent in Quebec City for Le Devoir. And uh, he's also associated, uh, you point out, in in uh, the Action Nationale. Um, he becomes much more critical of Duplessis as the 1950s progress, doesn't he? Absolutely. We have to say Laporte, like many intellectuals of his generation, is a nationalist and a reformist. Uh, a defender of a Quebec which occupies all the uh, jurisdictions established in the Constitution of uh, 1867. As with the Quiet Revolution program, which will bring to power in Quebec the, the liberal government of Jean Lesage, uh, he advocates a greater place and intervention of the Quebec state in the spheres of economy, education, health, social affairs and culture. We must not forget that before 1960, the conservative government of Maurice Duplessis, allied with the uh, Catholic Church, exercised absolute control over Quebec society. It's interesting to read you how Laporte starts to make a different sort of friends. He becomes much more associated with the Liberal Party. His friends are among liberals. As you say, he challenges conventional wisdom. And in 1962, he actually chooses to go into politics. What do you think prompted him to make the leap from journalism to electoral politics? As a journalist, he noted the corruption of the Duplessis government and, and place, but also the uh, inaction of this government on many issues. According to him, it is time for Quebec to give itself a truly competent, honest and active government. Um, he decided to run as an independent candidate in 1956 general election, but he will be defeated at that time. After an attempt to be elected as a city councillor alongside Mayor Jean Drapeau in 1957, he ran as a liberal candidate in 1961, and this time he is elected. He quickly became Minister of Municipal and Cultural Affairs in the Jean Lesage government. Um, he was very close to, to the Prime Minister at that time, the Prime Minister Jean Lesage. Well, the, the, if we could call him that, the four horsemen of the Quiet Revolution all started with an L. Lesage, La Joie, 
Laporte and Lévesque. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was a, really quatre L, like like they say, the in campagne. Yeah, tout, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was a very very um, important part of the uh, of this government was like very reformist. You know, they want to make huge, big challenge, big uh, you know uh, project to to redefine all the, the Quebec society. It was a huge team. We call that uh, l'équipe du tonnerre. You know, l'équipe du tonnerre. Yes, he's a good friend of Jean Drapeau. He's a good friend of Jean Drapeau, like all the people of Le Devoir are very close to Jean Drapeau, who on his level, on the Montreal level, fought against uh, Maurice Duplessis' influence. So, yes, they were pretty close. Yeah. So, Monsieur Laporte becomes a minister in 1962, and he will be a minister until 1966, when the Liberal Party is defeated by the Union Nationale. Yes. How do you evaluate his performance? You say he was a minister of culture and he was also the minister of municipal affairs how did how did he do was he a good minister or an ordinary minister uh, as minister of municipal affairs he put forward many innovative uh, ideas and, and urban planning and municipal governance uh, he will launch uh, also a movement to merge town and villages the most famous of which will lead to the creation of city of laval his brief uh, stint in cultural affair enabled him to continue the work of his predecessor, Georges-Emile Lapalme, by increasing the budget and resources of the young ministry. But in terms of the primacy and protection of the French language, he, he encountered opposition of, uh, from the prime minister. Um, finally, as house leader, uh, another uh, job he's got at that time, Laporte is uh, appreciated by all parties in the house and re he reveals a tremendous talent as a speaker so that's that's he, he did not like do did like a huge reform we could remember today like Levesque did with the nationalization of the uh of the uh, electric uh, company you know yes the montreal lighting well the montreal lighting power had been nationalized by the good boo government before but Levesque nationalized everything else in the nineteen in, in the nineteen sixties. Yes, exactly. The eleven eleven private companies uh, were um, nationalized at that time, so it was a huge uh, move, you know. So we remember that for René Levesque. But in, in Laporte's case, we can you know say there was a, a huge reform we could attribute uh, like easily like that to to him. Laporte comes across in your book as quite a nationalist. He reveals himself as an ardent defender of the French language. He speaks French very, very well. And I, I say this in a sense that he's got a remarkable vocabulary. He expresses himself with eloquence. Was he ever tempted to join René Lévesque and his project? In 1968? At the end of the um, 60s, he decided after Jean Lesage decided to go, um, he decided to, to run for the leadership of the Parti Libéral du Québec. Uh, so he wasn't, he wasn't close to Lévesque at that time. Then he, he, he lost, you know, uh, he wasn't chosen. Uh, Robert Bourassa was chosen to be the, the chief of this party. Um, so he was on another planet but a lot of people a lot of his friends said if he survived the uh, if he survived he would probably would go with René Lévesque because he was very uh, nationalist yes that's that's an yeah it's a but it's, it's again it's a remarkable it's a remarkable turn Pierre Laporte is a nationalist he's never tempted by the idea of joining some of his friends in Ottawa 
he decides to go to Quebec City to uh, dedicate himself to developing the Quebec state, proudly nationalist, proud uh, defender of the French language, a, a, a good friend of Levesque, and, and you're saying that had he survived October 1970, uh, again, we're all, we're all in the land of speculation, but... Yeah, it's speculation. It's difficult to say, but it's, yeah, I heard many comments of his friends saying, like, he would probably join, have joined René uh, Levesque at that time, yeah, in the 70s. Why did the FLQ target Pierre Laporte? Okay, the Philkist uh, cell called Chénier, uh, made up of Brother Paul and Jacques Rose, Bernard Lorty, and uh, Francis Simard, had initially chosen to kidnap the United States Consul, you know. But as the bridges leading to uh, the island of Montreal were closely guarded by the police, they decided to kidnap Pierre Laporte, then minister, like, like we said, and deputy prime minister, in the absence of Robert Bourassa, who was in New York at that time. On October 10th, 1970, four heavily armed Felkists um, proceed to kidnap him outside the house as he plays ball with his nephew in front of his wife and young son. He would be uh, assassinated by his captors on October 17th, seven days after. Everything seems to come together in that one moment. The, the fact that he is, as you pointed out, a family man, his nephew, he's playing with his nephew who lives down the street. Yes. You, you say in the book that the, the FLQ, uh, call them criminals, actually called the house first, and they spoke to Madame Laporte. Yes, yeah. And she said, yeah, he's playing outside. Yeah, you, you are in, in, in another time. Eh? It's not like today. Today we, we could see violence like so, uh, you know, it's, it's sad, but it's like that. At that time, it was completely different in Quebec. It was a very, you know, pacifist and everything so yeah she just say yeah my my husband is in the front of the house playing with uh, our nephew so um could you imagine after that for for the, the widow to just realize uh, that she you know she 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 said that and she must must have felt uh, terrible you know but it wasn't her fault at the same time she didn't know uh, uh to, to who she was talking to, you know, that's, uh, yeah. The grief is unimaginable. What was the consequence to his family of his murder? Oh, one can easily guess. The Laporte family was highly protected and kept at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal, okay? They were not regularly informed by the government about the kidnapping developments. The family learned of Pierre Laporte's death on television like all others, Quebecers and Canadians. They were devastated and felt um, betrayed also. They did not speak about this tragedy again as a family until uh, I have uh, I met them in, in 2011. Yeah, this is... Uh, they never spoke of their grief before? No, they never spoke together in family about their grief before. It was the first time when I met them. I wasn't supposed to meet the widow, uh, Pierre Laporte's widow, um, but it happens and was a very emotional moment. Well, let me ask you then, I mean, now that you're leading to this question, let me ask you the classic Champlain Society question. How did you go about writing your book? What were your sources? Who did you interview? How did you put together the material to write this, this great book? Without Pierre Laporte, archives available. There was no archive. Uh, Pierre Laporte didn't do any uh, archives. They didn't keep any archives. It was kind of very difficult. Huh? So I had to consult archives of his friends, relatives, and institution where he studied as well as newspaper where he worked. 
I also contacted Pierre Laporte's nephew, George Claude Laporte, uh, who helped me with the Laporte family aspect. I was also able, like I said briefly, um, to meet with other members, including Pierre Laporte's widow. An extraordinarily uh, touching moment, as one can imagine, for this uh, devastated family, which uh, has also preferred to remain silent. This tragedy that caused the life of the son, brother, husband, father, uncle, or cousin, who was Pierre Laporte, uh, was, that was terrible. This is a man who loved and was loved, and for this family, it was a huge tragedy, as we can imagine. It's, no, in fact, it's unimaginable. Um, this kind of thing simply had not happened in Canada since the murder of Darcy McGee, Thomas Darcy McGee, exactly. 100 years before. Um, and I think I think it shook it shook the country to its roots. Even even, I mean, I look at this historically. You know, the, the end of the Second World War was only twenty five years before, yeah. and Canada had known the deaths of forty five thousand soldiers. Absolutely, yeah. And yet this this stung in in a different way, and um, it's it for that reason it's it's uh, un unforgettable. Now I have to point out to our listeners, you are the only biographer of Pierre Laporte. Yes, absolutely. Um, like I just mentioned briefly before, um, when I was doing research on Georges Emile Lapalme, uh, which was a Quebec li a liberal leader in the 1950s. Um, I frequently saw the name of Pierre Laporte popping up in my research. Surprisingly, apart from the circumstances of his assassination, no work has focused on the central figure of this contemporary history of Quebec and Canada, you know? So it was, it was quite, quite strange. Why do you think Laporte has been so forgotten in his own Quebec? You know, Nathalie Petrovsky, a, a well-known journalist, said once about that, Pierre Laporte, it's like a terrible story, a terrible family story. You don't want to talk about it. You prefer to keep it in the closet and never open the door uh, because it's a terrible collective uh, failure that we can have, that we can, that we didn't save him, you know, at the end, that we were, weren't able to, to government Canadian or Quebec or Quebec didn't, didn't, you know, didn't do everything they can to save his life. That's, I think, the, 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 that's why we don't talk about Pierre Laporte. It's a question of shame? It's a question of shame. Yeah, a huge shame of all Quebecers to, to not be able to save his life. It was a terrible, terrible uh, tragedy uh, who marks a lot of Quebecois, a lot of Canadians too. How do you yes. think Canada should remember? So we talked about Quebec. How do you think Canada should remember Pierre Laporte? I think that people who go to Quebec City will cross the Pierre Laporte Bridge, and and that might be uh, an interesting moment of of, of reflection. Uh, there are a few schools named after Pierre Laporte, but how do you think Canadians at large should remember Pierre Laporte? I believe we should remember uh, his investigative uh, journalism, which was innovative at that time. Eh? It was was a very different figure at that time. Uh, no other journalists were practicing the same kind of journalism. He was particularly courageous at that time when few journalists dared to challenge the government of Maurice Duplessis and the Catholic Church. Uh, those investigations which uh, shook uh, a government and paved the way for the Quiet Revolution in 1960. His political action fits well in the extension of his journalistic action. 
alongside René Lévesque and Paul Guérin-Ajoie, Georges-Émile Lapin and, and others, the Lesage government launched a vast reform that could change the face of Quebec forever. We must remember this extraordinary contribution to Quebec and Canadian society, I think. I think it's a double tragedy that the the criminals of the FLQ launched themselves against someone who was a very proud Quebec nationalist and a Canadian nationalist at the same time. You know, one of the Felkists, uh, Robert Como, which is a friend too, when I talk about this project uh, many years ago, he told me this this was the wrong target. We we could we couldn't have been more wrong about the the, the the person we have chosen. He was one of the most nationalist guy, minister and this government and you know, we killed that guy. So uh, it was a terrible, terrible mistake, mistake for the for the Felkes too, in a way. Jean-Charles yeah. Penton, I want to finish with you as a writer. Um, your books are not available in English. I'm very sorry to say this. You've written uh, many different books. You wrote a, a very thoughtful volume on Georges-Émile Lapin. You mentioned him earlier. He was a liberal leader in, the, in Quebec in the 1950s and really was an architect of the thinking behind the quiet revolution. You chose La Porte as a succession to that. Um, are you are you continuing your reflection on the, uh, I'll, I'll call it the liberal, the evolution of liberal thought in Quebec? Where, what is your next project? Oh, I've got many, <laughs> many projects. <laughs> uh, I just started after Pierre, La, the, book of, the, the book on uh, Pierre Laporte and uh, Georges-Aimé Lapin I started um, I just wrote two books about the government, the Levite government. Uh, this government is, is, you know, following the quiet revolution, you know, he's, he's finishing a lot of reform. They did start, they did start in the 1960 and want to finish it in the, in the eighties, you know, so I'm working on that. So I have to, there's two books already and I'm finishing the third uh, book on uh, the government uh, Lévesque. After that, I want to do, I've got many projects. I would like to do something about Jean Lesage, but uh, it's not clear again. I would like to do something about Jean Drapeau, also a book. Um, I have a lot of projects. I just well, need... It's a good thing that you're a young man. Yeah, <laughs> not so young anymore, but as, as, uh, well, I like to have projects and work on them. I think it's important for all Canadian and Quebecois uh, to know their history. So it's, I think it's, part of my job to, to do that, to make them uh, discover that. And I think that your your focus on political history is something that we desperately need because we are rapidly forgetting. Yes, it's rare, yeah. Thank you very much for joining me today. It was a pleasure for me. Thank you. My guest today was Jean-Charles Penton. His book, Pierre Laporte, was published by Septentrion. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the Society does. There's a place for you to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. 
My name is Patrice Dutzil. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on September 18th, 2020, by our highly skilled producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.